All right, we're going to the Gospel of Mark this evening. Just going to continue on in that study. Mark chapter 1 is where we'll find ourselves. There, there are moments in our lives where we remember very vividly. Uh, for me, there's a number of things I remember, especially with my dad, uh, with some friends growing up, uh, around fishing. I love, I love to fish. Uh, not as much now as I love to hunt, but that's okay. I still, I still thoroughly enjoy, enjoy fishing. And I remember one time, my dad was the one who, he taught me a lot about fishing. And then there was another gentleman in our church named Mo, Mo Bell. He was my basketball coach in, in high school. And then he was just an avid fisherman. And he would often take me out and he would teach me the ins and outs of what kind of lures you're going to use, when you're going to use this. And, and he would teach me all those different dynamics of, of fishing. I remember one time we went down as a, as a men's group from our church. We went down to Table Rock Lake in Missouri. And we were fishing, and on the boat was my dad and Mo and then myself. Uh, and we were, we were fishing away and enjoying it and enjoying it. And I was, uh, I was about 18 years old and getting pretty cocky and thinking, because I was out fishing both of them wholeheartedly, no problem. I was catching two to their one, and they were getting frustrated. And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, the, the students finally passed the masters, and, and this is all going really good and, and loving it. And, and we got to a spot in, a, in one of the coves on the back of the, back of the, the lake. And as we're fishing, I hooked into what I felt was going to be the biggest bass of my life. And I'm, it, it pulled, my pole was bent over. I'm, I'm reeling and reeling. At the same time, Mo got a fish. It wasn't real big, but my dad hooked into a fish that was just, it, it was a monster. It, it, I, we both, Mo and I both agree, eight to a 10 pound largemouth bass. I mean, it was a big fish. And we saw it jumping out and my dad's fighting. And I'm like, dad, my fish is bigger. My fish is bigger. And so we, we have, we're having this tug of war on the boat going back and forth over who's going to catch their fish. And uh, he was trying to land his fish while I was trying to hold on the mine. And, and dad's, dad's fish, when they went to get it, it broke off and it snapped off. And of course, it was my fault because, you know, I, I was fighting on the back. So as I'm reeling, I'm finally, and I can feel the fish swimming around. I'm pulling it up. And as I pull it up, I see this, this line across. I'm like, what is that? And I had hooked onto what's called a trot line. A trot line, basically, people will set it out, and then catfish will come and hook onto the, the trot line. So I caught, I caught like a 13-pound catfish on a rubber worm, which you're never supposed to do. But I, I caught that, and they both looked at me and go, yeah, you think you know what you're doing. You got a lot to learn, kid. And I felt, I felt pretty dumb at that point. But I remember thinking about the, the whole concept of fishing and learning from my master and learning what they were going to be teaching me and how, how it all went. And there was this moment of failure and I felt really bad. But to this day, I still love the dynamics of fishing and what, what is brought to the table there. Now in the gospel of Mark here, we're going we're gonna to come to a part that's really familiar and it has to do with fishing. And it has to do with a, a statement that we are very familiar with and Mark is going to lead up to it. Now, as we've been going in the, in the prologue here, uh, Mark is talking about the way of the Lord. He talked about the way of the Lord is the plan of God. We talked about that, that it's approved by God. God says, this is my son. I'm well pleased. Then it was attacked by Satan. Satan was coming in. He wanted to stop Christ in the whole process. And then it, Jesus goes on and he's going to proclaim, you need to repent. You need to believe in verses 14 and 15. Uh, in the passage, and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe. And though, though the way of a, the Lord is attacked, and it was attacked, God's plan is for the disciples to proclaim 
the way of the Lord. And what Mark does is he's going he's to go right from Jesus right into the disciples. He, just, he walks right into it. Jesus is not going to be this lone wolf out in the desert who is simply going to try and do this all alone and, and go that. But the plan that he establishes and the pattern that is still in, in process for us today is that he teaches disciples, he trains them, and those disciples train others, and those disciples, and that process is continued. And we are the beneficiaries of thousands of years of disciples hearing the gospel and going on. So now, as we look at the gospel, what, what do we learn? You know, he talks about all those things with the way, but the way of the Lord, the fifth one, is carried on by followers of Christ. And that's what we're going to see in 16 to 20, and then we're going to look, we're going to jump around a little bit tonight rather than just sticking in this. We're going to look at three different passages that all have a very similar tone and tenor. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we'll see how, how that all ties together. But a disciple, they're one who has come to Christ, they, they've come to him for eternal life. They've come to the point where they claim Jesus and they're looking to live their life following after Jesus Christ. I think in our society today, the, the concept of I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm a disciple or I'm, I'm a believer, it almost has become cheap. It's almost become very shallow in the, in the sense of what is a follower, what is a disciple of Jesus Christ. So Christ is, is going to, to look at it. If we were to take some time and we were to talk about discipleship in Bible times, discipleship is not new to the New Testament. It isn't a concept that just started with Jesus. In fact, think about it for a second. Can you, can you name some? Let's uh, name some Old Testament discipleship scenarios where somebody older was teaching somebody younger to come up in, in a role. Can you think of any? Elijah and Elisha, that one, that one ought to be clear in our minds from Sunday and the, the last couple of Sundays. Absolutely. He's happy. You, you guys made his day. Good. Who else? Samuel and Eli and Samuel and the, and the training that, that occurs there. Good. Any others? I, I thought, you know, even Moses training Joshua. You have that, you have Samuel and Eli, David training Solomon. And then even Solomon, as he's writing to his sons in Proverbs saying, hey, this is my son, hear the instruction of your father, forsake not the the laws of your mother. Elijah with Elisha, Jeremiah is training Baruch and and explaining and taking that time and the, the teaching time. So this concept, and we could go through multiple different passages, discipleship or the, the passing down the heritage and the lineage and the legacy and the truths is not new. Discipleship, though, was definitely present in the New Testament. Can we do the same thing? New Testament examples of discipleship. Jesus in the 12. That one, yeah, very good. <laughs> yes. What else? Anyone else? Paul, Paul and Timothy. Okay, Paul and or Titus. Yeah. Who, who, who came along? Paul. Barnabas. Barnabas with Paul. So there's, there's that dynamic. You have, uh, you have Peter with Mark, which is often, uh, it's, it's, it seems to, to be believed that Mark and Peter were very close. And that's why Mark uses, and he refers to Peter a lot in the gospel as the first person, not just because he's the most prominent disciple, but it's often believed that Mark is, or Peter is Mark's mentor and Peter's uh, first source account to, to Mark's first source account to all that he's writing in the gospel, because Mark wasn't there at the beginning, but Peter Peter was. So discipleship is a concept that's, that's been there. If we, were to, if we were to talk about how would you describe discipleship in Bible times? If you're a fast reader, you got the first one. How would you describe discipleship in Bible times? If you were to think about it, what would, what would be some comments you would make? 
There's commitment, isn't there? Absolutely. Not just some commitment, it's a total commitment. Any other thoughts? There's, there's teaching involved. Absolutely. A, a student and a master or a teacher or a rabbi. See, often discipleship's a term that we hear, especially in our present-day culture, but it's one that taking the time to define, it, it becomes a little different. It's, it is in, the Bi- in Bible times, it was disciple-driven. What I mean by that is the disciple, the one who wanted to be taught, they initiated the process. They would go to a rabbi. They would go to a teacher and say, I ascribe to your truth. I want to sit under you. Would you accept me? So the disciple would drive the, the, the aspect. It was based around learning. So they wanted to learn the, the teachings of said rabbi or said teacher. They, they had to have an aptitude for it. They, they, they would pass tests. They would be able to answer. They had to show that they could dialogue and have conversations back and forth. So there had to be a certain level for many of the disciples of, of learning and knowledgeability. They voluntarily placed themselves under the master. So they said, we are going to put ourselves there. We're going to do what they would like us to do. And there was that master-student relationship where the master would make the claims. They would, the disciple would share in the master's work. What the master would say, they would do. When the master would go places, they would go with them. There was a loyalty to the master. They would find the ways of the master. They They would do what the master is teaching. And they would ascribe. So when two, two different competing factions, so to speak, would come, there would be heated arguments and debates because they might have differing opinions, but you were going to hold to your, your uh, teachers, your master, your rabbi's perspective. It was for an extended period of time. This is where some of that commitment, that total aspect of commitment comes in. It wasn't typically, okay, I'm just going to sit under him and call myself a disciple for two weeks. There would be an extended period of time and there was concrete commitment and action that I am going to do what he wants me to do. I'm going to act upon it. It's not just going to be taking it in, soaking it in and and learning. And then there was personal sacrifice, cost and risk. To be a disciple, you, you left, you followed your master, you would leave home, you would go with that master. And if your master failed, you were gonna fail with them. And so there was cost, there was commitment, there was sacrifice that was involved in just the general perspective of of discipleship during Bible times. So this was a common understanding, a common practice uh, in the New Testament, in the New Testament times. There's some interesting thoughts as I was thinking about the concept of Bible, discipleship in the Bible. The relationship was often oriented towards service. It was not just about learning. You would go and do what the master would have. You think Old Testament. Elisha's going to go with Elijah, and they're going to, to be on the move. They're going to go on their itinerant routes. They're going to be walking around. Joshua's going to go with Moses and learn what to do, not just sit there and, and soak it in, soak it in, soak it in. But there was, there was action that was involved. The disciples were training to carry out the master's work once the master had passed off the scene, not necessarily the master dies, but sometimes the masters would go to another area and the disciples were not going to go, but they would remain in that area. You think, of, you think of Paul and Timothy or Paul and Titus. As Paul goes to an area, he leaves Timothy at Ephesus and he goes on. Timothy is going to stay there. Paul has passed off the scene in Ephesus and now Timothy is going to continue to teach the truths that he was taught by, by Paul. 
The human master, when you look through, the human master, now talking biblical discipleship, not just a Judaistic discipleship, but a biblical discipleship, the human master never took the place of primary importance other than with Jesus Christ. That's, Jesus is always the exception to, to a rule. But uh, they would point beyond themselves to God so that the disciple was ultimately following, serving, and walking with God. You remember even Paul says, follow me as I am following Christ. He's, he's saying, not, not just because it's me, but because you're following Jesus Christ. And as I follow Christ, Lord willing, you are doing the same. So, so the, the, the discipler, the, the master, the teacher, would not want to say, I am the end all, but reflecting ultimately to, to God. And so what happens in the process here, when we look at, we look at Mark chapter 1, taking that understanding of discipleship, taking that understanding of what is going on in the Bible during that time for uh, the practice of discipleship, Jesus is going to start on his journey. He's preaching, he's teaching, he's saying, repent, the kingdom is at hand, uh, you need to believe. Now, verse 16, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he's gonna, there's going to be this um, encounter that occurs here. And you can, let's, let's just take, a, let's take five seconds. I mean, we can literally probably fill this in without even looking at the scriptures, but I'd encourage you to still look at the scriptures. Okay, we know that the location, he was walking by the Sea of Galilee in verse, verse 16. Okay, so now he walked by the Sea of Galilee. And uh, who, were the, who were the people who were there in this, this account right here? Simon Peter, yep, and his brother Andrew. Okay, so we've got Simon Peter and Andrew are the people, the people who are there. What were the actions? What were they doing? They're fishing. They were casting their nets. They were casting their nets into the sea. Okay, so, so doing, doing what they normally do. Their occupation, obviously, because they were, they were doing this because they were fishermen. And so what does Jesus say? Jesus looks and he says, follow me. And then he goes on a little bit further, and he doesn't just say, come after me. He says, come after me or follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. He said, you're going to become something that, that you are not currently at this moment. Now, notice, remember when we're talking about biblical discipleship. Who initiated the discipleship? It was the disciple. Who initiates this, this account? It's Jesus Christ. It's, it's, it's counter to what was the common practice. So Jesus is going to come with a direct mission. He's like, you, you follow me. The authority that he comes at that, it, the, the response that has to take place from James and John, what, what is their response? They promptly forsook and followed. They, they, they left, they did it, and, and Mark uses and straightway that immediate concept, that right away. They forsook their nets. They left those behind. They turned. They followed him. There, there's that, that aspect of, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to follow after Jesus Christ. And there's just some interesting things. The initiation by Jesus. I find that, that very interesting. In fact, we'll see that multiple times here. The fact that he looks at them and he says, I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. It doesn't mean that they're going to instantly become a fisher of men. There's going to be a process. There's going to be some time that it takes to get to, to, get to that point. And he's looking and saying, you follow after me. You come, you follow my footsteps. You do what I do. You become my 
student, my disciple, the, the one who is following me. So he has that encounter with them, and then he follows it up, and straightway they forsook their nets, they followed him, and now we're going to get encounter number two in verses 19 and 20. So encounter number two, the location still at the Sea of Galilee. Who are the people this time? James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Okay, they're, they're also known as the sons of thunder. They're, there's multiple names for them, but then probably that boisterous aspect maybe of the dads or by, by them, but they were, they were passionate people. They were some of the first, the first four called. Their actions, what were they doing? They were on the ship mending their nets. And what's interesting in Mark's gospel is he's not going to take the extra time that Matthew and Luke again do to go through and explain that they were fishermen as well and they were out. He just looks very, very matter-of-factly and says, gone a little further, saw, he sees James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they were also on the ship mending their nets. What does Jesus say to them? According to Mark. We don't, we don't even know. Now, it's assumed because of Mark just being brief and keeping it in the same context of fishing and in the same area and in the same thing, that he's looking, that, looking at them because their occupation, it's inferred that they're fishermen. Obviously, they're mending their nets out on the sea. But he calls them, he's saying the same thing to them. Follow me. I'm going to make you to become fishers of men. So he gives them that, that same calling. Again, Jesus initiates. Jesus is looking and saying, I have a task for you. I have called you to be this. What are you going to do with me? How are you going to respond? And he's taking that concept of discipleship. He flips it on its head a little bit. And they responded completely. They didn't just, not just the promptly. Mark highlights with them that they straightway, promptly they did did it as well. But what did they leave? They left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants, and they went after Jesus. This is one of those moments where I would love to see what their father looked like or wanted to say. Like, can you imagine if you were doing doing a project around your house with your dad back in the day, and, you know, someone comes by and says, hey, come with me. And you look at your dad and say, hey, see you later, dad that's not going to go well for most of you. For, it wasn't going to go well for me. It was like, you get back here and you get that dumb boy. You have no option. But these, these men look at their father and they say, hey, see you later, dad. We're going with, we're going with this guy, this man. And, that, and that's it. So there, there had to be, maybe not. Maybe, there was, maybe the dad was the perfect father who just said, wonderful, go. I'm so proud of you. You're just, you leave me with the hired servants. Thanks a lot. You know, and, and we just look and say, what, what all went down? They completely followed Jesus. They left family. They left business. They left livelihood to follow after, completely follow after Jesus Christ. So as we, as we look at the encounter, there's, there's an interesting aspect about this term fishers of men. I was, you know, and I've even taught at times that this was just this benign statement that Jesus is looking and saying, hey, let's be a little coy here. You're fishing. You like fishing. You be a fisher of men. But what was really interesting to me as I was doing some more study is that God uses the term fishing for men multiple times, about four different times in the Old Testament, looking and saying that God is going to send fishermen or hunters of gatherers of men. Now, what's interesting is the context that they're often in. 
Um, in fact, in Jeremiah 16, he says, Behold, I will send forth many fishers, saith the Lord, and they shall fish for them, talking about the people. And after I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt after them in the mountains and the rocks and the holes. For mine eyes are upon all their ways, not hid from their face. He's talking about what Israel had, had walked away from the Lord. And he's going to send these individuals to gather the men, to bring them back, and to bring them to judgment. So, so God uses this same analogy, the same, same perspective. He uses it again in Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 29. He says so to the Pharaoh, he's, Pharaoh's talking about the Nile and how he's controlling it and he's in so much power. And he, he looks in verse 4 and he says, I will put hooks in thy jaw and I will cause the fish of thy rivers to stick upon thy scales and I will bring thee up out of the midst of the river and the fish of thy river shall stick on the scales and I'll leave thee thrown in the wilderness thee and all the fishes of the river. He's talking about how he's, what he's going to do dealing with Israel. The fisherman, the fisherman here is God and that God is going to deal. He's going to be a fisherman of these Egyptians and he's going to bring punishment upon them. Amos chapter four, he talks about that. Um, he's going to, he's going to take them away with the, the, the hooks and the fish hooks. So he's using that perspective again, that God is going to fish for these people. Again, all in judgment perspectives. Uh, in uh, Habakkuk, this was, a, this was an interesting one, how clearly he lays out some of it. He says that thou hast ordained them for judgment. So again, it's in a judgment perspective. And he's going to talk about, you make the men as the fish of the seas, and they're going to take up all them that angle of fishing, and they catch their nets, and they gather them, and they rejoice. And therefore the sacrifice, verse 16, they get to the point where they're doing what Romans talks about, where they're worshiping how profitable, and they worship the creation rather than the creator. And he says, therefore, they shall empty their net and not spare continually to slay the nations. And uh, in, in this passage, he's talking about this is, this is how the Babylonians are actually treating people, that they're going out like fishermen and just bringing them in and swallowing them whole. But it's in a complete passage of judgment. And as I was looking and reflecting and, and reading some different commentaries, a number of them kept bringing out the perspectives that this phrase, fisher of men, is not just this, this, this cute statement. But there was, there was definitely some, some strength and some power to it. There was some understanding from the Old Testament that the prophets, they would speak of fishers or hunters bringing to catch the judgment. So there was in that context of judgment, and all the references are in those contexts of judgment. So being a fisher of men carried an important significance for the fish seeking to be caught. For the one who we are fishing for, they're going to be brought to judgment. In the Old Testament, brought to a damning judgment because of the way they had rebelled against God. But even now, as we think about that, are people not rebelling against God? And are we not, when we, when we go out and we share, are we not bringing people to, to a perspective where for those who believe, the judgment perspective, they have the joy of standing in judgment uncondemned. That when someone accepts the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not condemned. And they're, they're going to have the ability to go through and, and at the judgment seat. They're, well done, thou good and faithful servant. In the process of discipleship, bringing people through that. But as fishers of men, even now, as we bring the gospel out to somebody who is unbelieving, it is a message of condemnation. It is a message of judgment to look and say, if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, there is condemnation. There is judgment. So there is that dynamic that this concept of fishing for men is not simply this, this light, cute thing that, that we just think about. There is some weighty significance to what God has called you and I to be.
to be pointing people and bringing to the, the forefront that there is judgment for unconfessed sin, for unrepentant lives. And so God is, God is calling, calling people to this. So then we come to a third encounter. Now it's, it's gonna, we're going to fast forward a little bit in the gospel. Jump over to chapter 2, down to verse 13. Looking at this concept of discipleship in the gospel of Mark. The, the location, he's back by the sea. He's back by the Sea of Galilee, but now he's found himself at the Seat of Customs. And there at the Seat of Customs is another individual. His name is Levi or Matthew. Okay, so he's there at the, at the seat. He's, notice, that, notice his position. Because at first I just glossed over this, but I think there's an interesting dynamic here of what happens with the words Mark uses. He's sitting down and he's collecting taxes. So he's there and he's, uh, the multitudes resorted. Matthew, the son, Levi, the son of Alphaeus, is sitting at the receipt of customs. And what, what happens here? He's a tax man. He's collecting. He's in a really good spot because he's on the northern edge of Israel. He's te- it's in a bi- big industrial place with the fishing commodities, people coming from the north. So he's doing really well. He's in a good spot. And Christ looks and he says, follow me. That's it. Again, simply looks and says the same thing. Follow me. Notice his response. Notice, notice how he responds. Matthew responds to him. And he arose. There was a change in posture that took place. He went from being seated to arising to going to, to following. And he, he changes, he dynamic that changes in, in Matthew's life. I think there's another, and we'll, we'll highlight it when we go into the passage even further. You look at a man who is known for taking money, taking money, taking money, and the change that takes place in Matthew's life from this, this repentant moment with Jesus Christ, you see him now throwing this big party where you know the expenses are coming out from him. And there's, there's, a, there's a change that, that occurs. So now you have, you have Matthew who is looking and he's going to follow after Jesus Christ. Fast forward to chapter 3, verse 13. And uh, we get another account of Jesus and the disciples. He's gonna, Mark's going to round it out here, and he's going to look and say, okay, here's, here's, the rest of, here's the rest of the disciples. He's going up into the mountain, and he calls unto them he would, and they came, and he is going to ordain these 12 that they should be, and look, look what he says, that they should be with him. He's going to highlight the importance of fellowship and learning. Jesus understood the importance of having people, believers, together interacting with each other. He says, I'm, I'm bringing you, I'm ordaining you to, to go out and to preach. He said, I'm going to send you out. It's not that they're just going to go out on their own. He is going to send them out. It is an active dynamic. Again, discipleship is not just about sitting in a pew and soaking it in. It is an active dynamic that I am to be doing what the master says and what the master wants. He says, I'm going to give you the power to heal sickness. And I'm going to give you the, appel- uh, the ability to cast out demons. We'll highlight in a few weeks. You read through, read through sometime. Read through chapter one, two, three. And look at the numbers of times the idea of casting out demons, casting out demons, that Jesus is doing this and it talks about his authority and it talks about his power and it's stymieing and it's, it's baffling everybody. And now there is a transfer that is going to take place where Jesus is now going to say, I'm not the only one. You go do what I want you to do. Here's one of the things. Go cast out demons. You have that authority. You have that, power, that, power, that ability that, that comes through. So as Matthew, as Matthew or Mark starts to, to put it down, I put following Jesus is a loaded statement. 
Unfortunately, many people begin to see discipleship, see being a disciple as a photo op rather than a pathway to be experienced. What I mean by that is you ever, you ever going down the, down the road and you're looking and it's, it's beautiful and you get that little scenic moment, scenic overview, and you step out and you take this picture and you can say, I was at the Pennsylvania Grand Canyon or the Grand Canyon. You didn't stop, you didn't enjoy, you never experienced that whole endeavor, but you took the photo op to say, I was there. And I think that's what happens oftentimes with discipleship, especially modern day discipleship, is look, I am a believer, I got saved, I am a disciple of Jesus. But when you look at discipleship through the Gospels, it is a pathway, it is a journey that you are continuing to go on, growing and becoming like Christ, and then at times failing, and then at times getting the pieces picked up, and then going forward, and we'll see that with the disciples in the the Gospel of Mark. It's interesting to me that in this whole, the whole journey, Jesus initiates... And he does it on their turf. You know, so he doesn't wait for them to come to the synagogue. He doesn't, he doesn't wait for them to come to a religious place. Brother, he goes out. He's going to initiate the conversation. He's going to talk to those individuals. And as he builds a relationship, or he looks with authority, says, hey, you follow me. And, and so many times in our lives, we think, oh, we'll, we'll wait for disciples to come to us. Rather than looking for the opportunities to go out to witness, to share the gospel, and then to, to be bringing people in and discipling them. When we look at the idea of a photo op or a pathway, we have a journey that we are on in discipleship, becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. That is our goal, that is our growth, that is our responsibility. And so as we, we go on this journey, we are to follow the path of discipleship. All that needs to be learned or done can be learned or done by following Jesus. You say, oh, I'm not, I'm not real good at some of these things. I'm not qualified to be a really good disciple. Look at the men that Jesus called. Now, I'm not there. I don't think, I don't, I don't believe that these men were just, you know, buffoons, for lack of a better word, who didn't know. I mean, they were, they had thriving businesses and a cutthroat economy. When you do a study around the Sea of Galilee and the numbers of boats and the numbers of people were fishing in that area and how important it was, they had a thriving, so they had some business savvy. They had some smarts to them. I don't, I don't think they were, we can just look and say, well, you know, he's just a nobody, but they, he took common people. He took people who were just the average everyday run of the mill who said, I'm going to follow you. And that's what Christ wants for us. That's who we are. When I look around, that's who we are. We're just every, everyday, common, run-of-the-mill people who God is wanting to, to call and to move and to continue to move in the direction of becoming more and more like him. So what does discipleship look like as we look through it? Discipleship, it requires a response. It requires a response. Jesus said, follow me. It is a command. What will you do with the summons of Jesus Christ? When, when he looks and he says, I want you to do this. I want you to go witness. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to minister to these people. I want you to serve. I want you to, to bear one another's burdens. I want you to pray. What do you do with the commands of Jesus Christ? It requires us to respond. It requires decisive action. Will we do it? Or will we look and say, well, we'll leave that for somebody else? Because that's really, I'm, you know... I, And we never really give an answer. We just don't want to do it. It is a decisive response that we are to have. Discipleship requires changes. Think to to Matthew, think to to John, to to Andrew, to Philip, or to Peter. 
They're, they're changing their occupations. Maybe God will call some of us to, or some of you to change your occupation. That may happen. That may not. But he does call us to be responsible to change, to take maybe our time commitments that we're so consumed with X, Y, and Z that we don't have time for Christ. We don't have time for service. And we don't have time to disciple somebody else or to pour our lives into to other people. It required a change in mindset. There was a shift that had to occur. For Matthew, he had to go from, it's all about me. I'm the great tax collector. I'm ripping people off to make my life a lot better to now it's about Jesus Christ. There had to be a shift in, in the mindset that occurred. How, how, I dis- how I discipline. That may be a mind shift, shift uh, aspect that may have to occur in some of our lives for our kids. Are we disciplining in a Christ-like and God-honoring way? How I steward my money? Am I doing it in a way that is, is following what Christ has said? My work choices, my dating choices, my attitude with others. There is a radical break that must occur from the old way in order to be following the new way. The value system of our life must change. And if our value system has not changed, am I really a disciple of Jesus Christ? If I find myself going back to my old value system, then what's wrong with my heart? Where, where am I at in that, that dynamic? Discipleship requires time. When we are to disciple, remember, it's not the picture, it's not the photo op. It is this pathway. In case you're wondering, I have not arrived. Okay, spiritually, just, just so you're aware, I haven't got there yet, and neither have you. And aren't you glad we haven't? Because if this was it, it would be a pretty scary moment in Christianity. We are continually going on a pathway toward Christ-likeness. At least I hope we are. So as you are in the process of discipling, ministering, to others, it's going to be, there are going to be times where we're irritated, where we're frustrated. We're like, why don't they get that? But it takes time. There is, there is that process that is, that is taking place. It takes time. There's, there's going to be those frustrations, but I'm constantly being discipled by God, and I should be constantly discipling, moving somebody else closer to Jesus Christ. Discipleship requires fellowship. Christ, Christ brought them in. He said, I want you to be with me. And look at the numbers of times. I, I believe one of the greatest blessings to Jesus multiple times was having those men around him when he was exhausted. And there were even times where he got tired of them and he got away by himself even beyond that. But he understood the importance of fellowship. If we don't take time with believers, then guess what? We're not going to have time to disciple each other, to minister to each other. Because if it's just about us and we just do our own thing and we don't have time to interact, discipleship can't occur. It is a responsibility that we have. Discipleship requires allegiance. We'll pledge allegiance to a flag, but do we pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ? We will, we will you know, we'll bleed red, white, and blue for our country, and, and believe me, I'm all for our country and I love it. But Will I bleed and die for my Savior? Will I be, will I be an individual of allegiance to him? The, the disciples, they had to take everything that they had and they said, we are going to follow you. We're going to follow in your footsteps. Matthew goes from the call to the Roman authority. He gives everything to Rome. And now he's going to radically change his allegiance from Rome to Jesus Christ. James and John are going to go from their their father's business, dad's in the boat, and they're going to change allegiance from him to Jesus Christ. uh, Peter and Andrew, they're going to look at this lucrative business they have, and they're going to change their allegiance from that to Jesus Christ. 
Are we, as disciples in America, in our church, personally, are we truly having an allegiance to Jesus? I need to be free from my old allegiances so that I can be dedicated to the new allegiances I have in Jesus Christ. That as he gives truth, that as he shares with me through his word, I can freely live those ways, not bound, not entangled, as as Paul talks about, by the affairs, the civilian pursuits of, of this world. But rather, I can follow after Jesus Christ in allegiance to him. This naturally required them to be attached to their mentor. They had to be around Jesus. And if you want to be a disciple, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I must be around Jesus. And the people that we disciple, we need to be encouraging them to be around Jesus and Jesus' people so that they can continue to grow, so that they can continue to become like him. Discipleship requires acceptance. Now, acceptance is talking about accepting the master's authority, accepting the master's goals, the master's endeavors, the master's care, the master's cause. They looked and said, we are going to be about Jesus's program, Jesus's plan. Our lives are about Jesus. So with that, it requires a cause. Jesus had a cause. Discipleship, it's just not, okay, we're just out here for nothing, just to have a good time together. No, there is a purpose to what we should be doing in discipleship with one another, with people who are new believers, looking and saying, what is our cause? What are we here for? It's not just to swap stories. Jesus has said it, it, the, chapter 1, verse 14, he's out there. He's like, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, believe. That's Christ's cause. And right after he states his cause, he says, you, follow me. I need your help. You, follow me. I need your help. I want you to go out and I want you to share the gospel. It is a cause that he says he needs helpers. Is the cause of Christ worth it? Is the gospel a priority to you and to I? If it's not, then are we really about our master's business? If he is about the saving of souls, if he is about coming to seek and to save that which is lost, he is about coming to minister and not to be ministered unto. But if we look at our lives and say, my life is I don't have time to go uh, share the gospel. I don't have time to... Uh, to do all those things. And I, I, really, I really don't have the energy and time to minister to people. I just want people to do what I want. Am I about my master's business? Am I following his cause? Discipleship requires a continued pursuit of the master's goals. When the master is gone, inherent in the concept of the discipleship to the apprentice the, the, the apprentices to take on the truth and continue. The 12 are sent out to preach. They're, they're to heal, to cast. They're, they're, they're active in what they're supposed to be doing. The amazing plan of what Christ has called us to, and we are called by Christ, is that he looks at you and I, and he says, here we are. Go, tell, share, Come alongside of, minister to a believer, serve them, encourage them, be there for them. You be about my goals, my business. Not just simply about what I want, but looking and saying, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I need to be pursuing his goals. I need to be going forward to seek, to save that which is lost, to minister unto others. Discipleship requires imitation. It is a reflection of the teacher 
the disciples' actions are a reflection of the teacher. How are we, how are we doing it reflecting our master? That's going to come up in the next couple chapters. The Pharisees are going to look at the disciples and they're going to say, hey, wait, 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 why, why aren't these guys praying and fasting like our disciples do? You know, because they understood that's a bad reflection on you, Jesus, because you're supposed to be teaching them that that's a good thing. Why, why are why your uh, disciples, why are they eating corn or grain on the Sabbath day? You know, if you were a good disciple, they're questioning Jesus' authority throughout because they understand how the disciples are acting and what they're doing is a reflection on the teacher, on the master. And so it requires imitation. It requires risk. When we look at what, what does it, it cause, they leave their job, they leave their family, they leave their government positions. And, and it's unknown what Jesus would do. They did not know. They don't have the hindsight to know that, hey, if you follow after Jesus, he's going to use you to turn the world upside down for Christ. That you guys are going to be the leaders of the church. That you are going to be the ones who are going to go out and shake the world for Jesus Christ. They had no clue of any of that. All they knew is this man speaks with authority. He said, follow me. I'm going to follow him and pour my life into him. Christ calls us to be disciples. To follow after to, to put the risk in. Following is an act that involves risk and cost. It is something that one does not simply think about or believe. He requires us to be active in the ministry. It requires a cost. Financial, maybe. Time, probably. Effort, absolutely. Getting up early to study the Bible so that we're prepared, Yes. Maybe taking, taking that extra call from a friend late at night, but you're tired, but you know you need to. Spending some extra time at church or picking up some, uh, someone to come to church or visiting, going out calling and, and following up on neighborhood night people or, or individuals. Sometimes it's being rejected for sharing the gospel. Sometimes it's going to be facing opposition to, to your beliefs. There are, there are lots of different costs that we face but it is the cost of discipleship to take up our cross to follow him. I think we've come to the point, oftentimes in American Christianity, speaking generally, where we do not want the hard path of discipleship. It's too difficult. Just, just let, me be, let me be a Christian let me come to church. Let me get filled up. Let me take it all in, but don't squeeze me out. Discipleship requires us to go forward. It requires us. Discipleship means this. Basically, this is a very easy definition. It means to help others walk with Jesus in the real world. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to be helping other people learn how to walk with Jesus. Whether it's taking them through a Bible study or fielding a phone call. Whether it's sitting down and crying with them and talking with them. We're to be doing that. Whether it's, it's, it's going across the street to a neighbor who they're going through a difficult moment and saying, Hey, is there anything I can do? Let me help. We are to be Jesus in skin for people and helping them to see how Jesus would walk through a crisis, through a difficulty. You're at school, you're at college, and you have that responsibility to, to demonstrate what Jesus Christ would be like and, and talking with others, helping them to do that because I must be helping others to walk with Christ. I must be helping others grow in their relationship. And I must personally, through that all, becoming like Christ 
discipleship. It's not just a program that's out there. That's what it's become in American society. Discipleship is what we are to be about. To go into all the world and make disciples. How are we doing? How are you doing personally? As you look through that list, hopefully we can say, Lord, help us to be better disciples for people today.